Happy Father's Day. Oh, thank you. You don't have to have beget to be a father. As Lord willing, we shall see. Uh, Let us turn our hearts to God in a word of prayer, please. Father in heaven, in Jesus' name, we come to you. We thank you because of your grace and your mercy. We thank you because you are the God of all comfort, the Father of compassion. You are a Father to the fatherless. You daily bear our burdens. You're the best provider, and you pardon us, and you guide us, and you protect us. And the best thing that could have happened to us, you've given to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your Son to the cross to die for us, to bear our burden as our elder brother, as our Savior, as our Redeemer, so that we could be your sons, so that we could call you Daddy, we could call you Papa. Father, thank you that you have promised never to leave or forsake us or to turn your back upon us. We thank you that even in our unfaithfulness, you remain faithful. You cannot deny yourself. And that means you cannot deny those who are connected to you through Christ. Father in heaven, we we thank you for the scripture. We thank you for your spirit, the spirit of adoption that teaches us that we're your children. Father, we, we need him to guide us this morning as we look at your word. This is your word. These are your people. And Father, we need your spirit. We need the mind of Christ to understand the matters before us. And so would you do that for your glory, for your praise? Would you give us hearts that really long for you to get the glory and to get the praise? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to direct your attention to uh, Psalm 78. Psalm 78, shouldn't be difficult to find. Psalm 78, I want to talk to you today about a father's greatest legacy. The greatest thing any father can give uh, to their children. Uh, In the world we live in, uh, there are often much that fathers give to their children. Uh, Sometimes upon their death, they leave an inheritance. They leave a, a large sum of money. Or they give some kind of training in some particular skill that is on the hot button in the culture, like an IT education, which is going to make a lot of money. Parents often uh, desire to see their children succeed, and, and what parent wouldn't? You'd be foolish not to want your child to succeed. But I want to talk to you today about uh, the absolute greatest legacy uh, you can give uh, your children. And it's found in this psalm. We see it here repeated again and again. And we'll talk about it. Um, and this is uh, profoundly important. Um, oftentimes in our culture, the place of the mother is, um, is noted. And that's probably right. It should be noted. For years, women have been ostracized and um, discriminated against, and they're coming into their own, so to speak, in seeing how mothers have had such an impact. People have said the hand that rocks the cradle 
what rules the nation. And, uh, but often in the process of trying to do justice to the role of the mother rightly, oftentimes the father is put on the back burner. He's just the guy with the remote control or the guy out waxing his car on Sunday. And uh, the place of the father, the importance of the role of the father cannot be overstated, even as the place of a mother's role cannot be overstated. Young girls will often gravitate to a man who has characteristics just like their father. Young men, boys, will most of the time mirror the same quality characteristics they see in their dad. They reflect that as they grow up. Fathers who are absent and who are not involved uh, are the cause of most of the incarcerations in the country and throughout the world. It's the absence of a father, the absence of the involvement of a father, not just the absence of his presence, but his purposeful presence, present for a purpose. God made you on purpose. It wasn't a mistake. And for fathers to be involved in the lives of their children with a particular purpose in mind, a particular aim, a particular goal, not just there, but there for a reason. Let's, let's look at this psalm and we can talk about these things a little bit more deeply and pointedly. Psalm 78. I'm going to read the first verses and we'll work our way through it, Lord willing. It's a long psalm, but Lord willing, we'll get through it in a record time. Uh, so don't get nervous. It's 72 verses. Wow. Put your stopwatch on, right? <laughs> Let's listen to God's Word. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. In these verses you see the role of a father as the teacher. The fathers have told the children. It is the primary responsibility of fathers, taking nothing away from mothers, but it is the primary role of the fathers as the head of the household to teach their children. And notice what they're teaching is considered a parable. It's considered a, a dark saying. A, a parable is something that is not for dabblers. You have to study. You have to research. You have to really give your mind to something to figure out a parable. You remember when Jesus gave parables, often people didn't get what He was talking about, but His disciples, those who were really interested and serious about following Him, went and asked Him, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And for those who inquired of Jesus, they got the answers. Fathers have to be people who are constantly running to Jesus for answers. For Him to unfold the dark sayings. It doesn't mean that God is purposely trying to be vague, but it means that God is interested in people who are serious about discipleship. Serious about seeking Him with their whole heart. And in the process of doing that, you will find, as you have already found, many of you, that God will open up the word of him, His Word to you and make things plain. But the things that fathers are focused on here is not so much a great education or a boatload of money 
to drop on their children. It's not so much giving them a particular skill, not that there's anything wrong with any of these things. But what these fathers here are directed to do is to tell the coming generation, in verse 4, the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Notice that this is a psalm. It's something that's to be sung. And, and what's, what's, what's being conveyed here is that fathers are, fathers are worshipers. They're worshipers of the living God. They worship God. They sing His praise. They sing His praise. Um, one of the things I recall about my own dad is that he used to sing hymns around the house. Something I've tried to pick up. I don't know if my voice is as good as his, but um, he used to sing hymns around the house. And there, there should be in the house an aura of worship, an aura of praise, because the Lord's deeds are glorious. Yahweh's deeds for us must be declared by us and by our children. They're glorious deeds. They're mighty deeds. They're wonderful deeds. And, and they find their culmination in, in, in Jesus Christ, who is the, the glory of God displayed. Jesus is, you ever want to know what God is like? Well, look at Jesus, and particularly look at the cross of Jesus. That unfolds the very heart of God for us. That is what God is like. He's sacrificial, He's loving, He's gracious, He's merciful, He's slow to anger, He's abounding in steadfast love, He's tenacious in His faithfulness to reclaim His people, His heritage, and call them His own. He's a God who forgives wickedness, transgression, and sin. He's a God who's serious about holiness, by no means clear the guilty. He's a God who calls us to repentance and to faith. And so fathers are to be those who are telling their children the gospel. And so what is that greatest legacy we can leave with our children, but, but the legacy of Jesus Christ, the legacy of the gospel, the legacy of the cross, the legacy of the heart of God seen in HD, Technicolor, years ago on a hill called Golgotha with his own son stretched out, beat up, bloody, bleeding for sinners. It's the heart of God. That's the legacy to leave. Because, because you can have the education, you can have the money, you can have the houses, you can have the land, you can have the family, you can have all those things and Jesus' words still ring true that you can gain the whole world and still lose your very soul. How many people in 2008 when the market crashed jumped out of windows, killed themselves because their life was wrapped up in money, wrapped up in stuff, wrapped up in possessions, but they killed themselves because they didn't have the character of godliness to deal with the bottom dropping out. That's the legacy we need to leave with our children is a legacy that has a foundation, a legacy in Jesus Christ, a legacy in God Himself, giving God to your children. There's nothing greater. In verse 5, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers to teach their children. Notice these words that God established a testimony in Jacob. God did something in the nation of Israel that gave people a testimony. Gave them something, some reason to shout. Some reason to sing. God did something in history that gave mankind a reason to worship. A reason to leap with joy. 
God brought His people out of bondage. He brought His people out of Egypt. He brought His people out of slavery, out of affliction. He left a testimony in Jacob. God has put a testimony in every single child of God. You believe in Jesus, God has put a testimony in your heart. There's nothing greater you can give to your child than your testimony. How once you were lost, but now you're found. Not because you're so good, not because daddy's a hero, but because God is the hero and Jesus is the hero. Look what he did on the cross for a sinner, for a rebel, for a pervert like me. And that testimony, that testimony, look at what it says. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. The testimony that God gives you is what gives you a foundation and a motivation for obeying God. That's how the commandments begin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, here's ten ways to say thank you. Here's ten ways to direct your life based on what I've done. And that's how we are to parent. That's how God parented. He said, look what I did for you. I often thought it would be interesting to, photo, to videotape mothers giving birth to their children. I've never done this, so don't look at me strange. It's just a thought. So that when little Johnny or Debbie or whoever it might be starts acting out, say, come, come, I want to show you a movie. I want to show you a movie. I want to show you what pain and what suffering brought you into this world. Now go back there and listen to your mother who gave you life. That was free. I wasn't planning to say that, but it just came out. But God's love for us, His, His suffering for us, how did they get out of Egypt? They got out by the blood of a lamb. A little lamb was killed. A little lamb was hacked up. And His blood was spilled on the wall. That's how they got out of Egypt. It wasn't because Moses was, such, was all that. It's because God told them to spill blood. It's the same way we get out of slavery and bondage to sin and Satan. It's because a little lamb named Jesus Christ spilled His blood on the cross. And so it calls us, it constrains us to love God in return. He commanded the fathers with this law, to teach their children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Well, there's a legacy right there. That's what we're supposed to be leaving with our children. It's, it's discipleship. Discipling our children to love Jesus who loved them first. So that they would hope in God. Verse 7. That they would not forget the works of God, but they would keep His commandments. They would love God who has loved them. And that they should not be like their father's stubborn, rebellious generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful. 
God calls us and calls our children to covenant faithfulness. Jesus is the bridegroom and we're the bride. And He calls us to be faithful to our bridegroom, to love Him, to be devoted to Him, to count His works dear, to be devoted to sharing with the next generation what God has done. You know, in, in the course of history, this, is the, this has been the failure. You know, when Moses came down to Egypt and uh, told Pharaoh to let God's people go, Pharaoh said, well, I don't know the Lord. Which is another way of saying in Hebrew, I don't acknowledge Him. I don't know Him, I don't acknowledge Him. I'm the Lord here in Egypt. And notice what it says in, in Exodus chapter, chapter 1. It says in verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. But somehow Joseph's generation dropped the ball. Somehow this king didn't get the memo of what God had done, what wondrous deeds he did in their days. And so he wasn't willing to acknowledge the living God. You notice that when they came into the land and Joshua brought them in the land, and somehow the ball got dropped again. Joshua said, Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But then in Judges chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him and within the boundaries of his inheritance in Temnath, Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim. In hill country of Ephraim. Joshua was an Ephraimite. Nor for the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. Somehow the fathers dropped the ball in not training the next generation to know the Lord. That's what it says here in verse 9 back in Psalm, Psalm 78. It says, The Ephraimites armed with the bow. The Ephraimites of all people turned back on the day of battle. Joshua was an Ephraimite. When, when Israel was going into the land, it was Joshua and Caleb that said, we can do this. And the ten spies said, no, we can't. But Joshua stood his ground and said, yes, we can. Not like we say, yes, we can. But he said, yes, we can. God can. He was an Ephraimite. He had a legacy. And God kept him alive to enter into the land, to lead the people into the land. It was Joshua that God used to bring the people into the promised land. The Ephraimite, he had a legacy. But here it says that even the best, even the mightiest, drop the ball when they forget about what God has done. When they don't make the priority of leaving the legacy of the Gospel with the next generation and they make something else a priority, something else is more important, something else has seized the day as being more important in the life of my child than the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Ephraimites armed with bow turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant. They didn't keep loving Him, but refused to walk according to His law. They forgot about Him. They forgot His works. That's why they refused to walk in His law. They forgot His works and the wonders that He had shown them in the sight of their fathers. You know, um, the writer of Proverbs tells us what brings joy in our life. It says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1, 
It speaks about fathers. Proverbs 10, verse 1. It says, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 17, 21. He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. Verse 25 of the same proverb, Proverbs 17.25, A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. And then we all know the passage in 3 John chapter 4, or verse 4, where the Apostle John says regarding his apostleship, his discipleship ministry, his training people to love Jesus. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. There's no greater joy, he says, than to hear my children walking in the truth. In verses 12 through 16, we see the psalmist is recounting the very things that God did. In the sight of our fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt. In the fields of Zoan, he divided the sea. They passed through. It made waters stand up in a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and at night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of a rock and caused waters to flow down the rivers. 1 Corinthians 10 says that that rock that was with them in the wilderness through which water came out, the Bible says that rock was Christ Jesus himself. At some point in, in, in Israel's history, uh, they needed water, they were thirsty in the wilderness, and God said, Moses, I'm going to stand on the rock, and I want you to strike the rock, and water's going to come out. And he struck the rock, and the Apostle Paul says that was Jesus Christ standing on the rock, being struck down to give life for His people. It's the Gospel that gives life. It's the Gospel, and, and that's what he's recounting here, how they came out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb, how they were fed with the manna from heaven, Jesus Christ again, the bread of life. And they drank from the rock, Jesus Christ again, the water of life. Verse 17, yet they sinned still more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They, te they, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can He also give bread or provide meat for His people? You see the discontent, the ingratitude in these statements. That He did that, but can He do this? The ingratitude. Yahweh's deeds for us must be declared by us and by our children. Yahweh's discipline of us must be didactic for us and for our children. Here we see that in the face of great salvation and redemption, the people sin. They fall away. They start speaking against God, blaspheming, slandering Him, despising Him. It says in verse 21, Therefore when the Lord heard, He was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust His saving power. 
You know, sometimes it's in the desert, it says, that these complaints came out in verse 17. It was in the wilderness that they started complaining in verse 19. And sometimes life gets hard. It gets difficult, does it not? Sometimes you feel like you're in a pressure cooker. That everything's against you. Everything's opposed to you. And God brings that into your life not to make you bitter, but to make you better. He brings it in your life to grow you up, not to give you a gripe. God wants to use those times of difficulty and hardship to give you a testimony, to see how He can come through in the midst of all of that. Look at Abraham, a hundred years old, finally got a baby, right? He came there when he was 75. I'm going to give you a, a child. I'm going to make a great nation. So Ishmael came up. But God said, no, that was your plan. That's not my plan. My plan is to wait until you got one foot on a banana peel and one foot in the grave. And that your wife's womb is dead and she's way past menopause to prove that this is me doing this, not you. That it's my engineering, not your engineering. God is in it to get praise. God is in it to get glory. God is in it to get worship. And it's not narcissism. He's God. Everything good comes from Him. And as soon as we take our eyes off of Him, we make something else an idol. Something else to beef up our own esteem or character. Make us feel good about ourselves instead of feeling wonderful about God. Instead of being floored again and again by the mercy of God, by the grace of God, by the work of God. That He leaves us speechless. He leaves us profoundly standing there with our mouths open. How on earth could this happen? Only by the hand of God. And so God uses these times of struggle and difficulty and desert and wilderness to teach us. They're supposed to be didactic. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says in verse 3, And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He purposely made his people hungry. What kind of father is that? But he purposely did it to teach them not to depend on themselves, but to depend on him and to see him come through. It says the Lord was angry with his people. And yet, in verse 23 of Psalm 78, it says, He commanded the skies above and they opened up the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of the angels, the bread of the bread manna. Jesus is the manna that this manna points to. They ate this and died, but Jesus has manna. Jesus himself is the bread of life. He says, eat from my flesh, drink my blood. He's not talking literal. He's saying these words are the words of eternal life. Eat the gospel. Chew on the gospel. Eat it up. Consume it. Let it be your life. Abide in it. Let it abide in you. Let it be the first thought in the morning. The last thought before you go to sleep. The thought ongoing throughout the day. Let the Gospel be the center. He gave them. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by His power He let out the south wind. And He rained meat on them like the dust. Winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp. All around their dwellings. And they ate and were filled with, for He gave them what they craved. Be careful if while refusing to obey God, 
You ask God for something, and you get it. Be careful if God gives you what you crave while you are refusing to follow Him. It says He gave them what they craved, but before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord rose against them, and He killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. God gave them what they craved and then put them in their graves because they they refused to follow Him. They refused to love Him. They refused to love Him. You know, um, when, when, when our desire becomes a demand, then we begin to demand that God submit to our desire. And that's all wrong, isn't it? God is the only one who has a right to demand stuff. He made us. We're created in His image. He put us here for Himself, for His own purpose. And so we're here for Him, not for ourselves. And so these people had a long lesson, and this psalmist is singing about this to the next generation. He's saying, you and I need to let this be didactic. We need to learn a lesson here. That when trouble comes, God is in it to make us more like His Son. And let's not complain, let's not grumble, let's not murmur, but let's give thanks. It says in verse 32, in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite His wonders, they did not believe, so He made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror When He killed them, they sought Him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock. The Most High God was their Redeemer. Let it never be said about us that God's got to bring death. God has to bring difficulty in order to get us to remember Him. It's a sad day in Israel at this time when when the only thing that made them think about God was that now I'm in a ditch. Now I'm in trouble. Oh yeah, they have a V8 moment. I should have prayed or I should have thought about God. I should have remembered what He did in the past and now He's faithful to the last. Let it be said of this generation, let it be said of me, of you, that we remember God because He loves us because He's worthy to be in our brain all the time. He's just that good. He's just that exceptional. Nothing compares to Him. But they flattered Him. Verse 36. Yahweh's deeds for us must be declared by us and by our children. Yahweh's discipline of us must be didactic for us and for our children. And last, Yahweh's devotion for us must be decisive for us and for our children. Let me just say one thing. You know, when God disciplines us, it's because, it's because He loves us as a father. In, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you like a son. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If we do not undergo discipline, then we're illegitimate children. But God, God loves us, and that's why He disciplines us. That's why He comes after us. Because God wants us to participate in His holiness. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
And so God sometimes comes and makes life difficult and brings storm upon storm because He wants us to live for Him. He wants to see us. The storm is God saying to you. The difficulty in life is God saying to you. The hardship you're dealing with is God saying to you. The difficulty on the job is God saying to you, I want to see you in glory one day. And I'm going to use this to shape your character and to get you stuck on Me. You're in Christ. And I want you to be embracing Christ. And so I'm using these difficulties to bring you closer because I love you so much I want to see you in glory one day. I want to see you face to face. I want to see you glorified. I want to see you kick your feet in the golden sand as you hold the crucified Master's hand. I want to see you in glory. So I bring this struggle. I bring the trouble to get you off yourself and get you on to me. Yahweh's devotion for us must be decisive. It says in verse 36, look at the context here. Verse 36 to verse 42, but they flattered Him with their mouths and lied to Him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward Him. They were not faithful to His covenant. Yet, He being compassionate, atoned, for their iniquity, and did not destroy them. He restrained His anger often and did not stir up all His wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel, they did not remember his power or the day that he redeemed them from the foe. And then it goes on again talking about Egypt and how he performed all these signs. In the middle of their failure, you see God's faithfulness. And often that's what the Old Testament is it's a record of how unfaithful people are and how faithful God is. And in the midst of all of that, you have center stage. In the midst of their trouble and their sin and their rebellion and their forgetfulness, you have a God of compassion who atones for their iniquity. And it's the same thing for us. That we sin coming to Jesus. And we meet Jesus. And there's still sin after Jesus. But what's central in our life is the atonement. That Jesus died. He shed His blood. He clothed us in righteousness. He gave us a reason to shout. He gave us a reason to sing. He gave us a reason to jump about. He died for our sin. He bathed us in His blood. He cleansed us. He clothed us. He filled us. He went and prepared a place for us. He's given us grace and reason to run this race, albeit imperfectly with our eyes fixated on Him. This was their hope. This was the reason for the psalm. This was the reason for the song that there's a God of compassion who redeems and atones. Even though we are forgetful, unfaithful. Look at what it says. See, it says in verse 43, when He performed His signs in Egypt and His marvels in the fields of Zoan, 
he turned their rivers into blood, and he goes through the plagues, and he talks about how he killed their firstborn sons in Egypt by a destroying angel in verse 49. He made a path for his anger. He didn't spare them from death. He gave them their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt. The first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led his people out like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Twice in this psalm, God references the Egypt, it represents Egypt, coming out of Egypt. Because the gospel's central. And the gospel is seen in Egypt more in the Old Testament than anywhere else in the Old Testament. That God has redeemed his people from bondage and called them to himself and brought them in the promised land. That's what it says in verse 55. He drove out the nations before them. He appointed them, apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. God's going to do the same thing with you. He brought you out of bondage. He brought you out of sin and slavery to Satan. He's taken you to the promised land. Jesus is the pioneer. He's gone ahead before you. He's seated on a throne. He's preparing a place for you. You've got a room up in glory. You've got a place. You've got a mansion like the old folks used to say. There's a place for you with God. Emmanuel is coming in the fullness. You already have it. God is with you always, even to the end of the age. But one day you'll see Him face to face. Verse 56, Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. You see how the, the psalmist is making an argument that the reason why there are these hills and valleys like this is because the fathers didn't tell their children. That's what he's saying. To prevent these things from happening, fathers need to get the gospel first and foremost as the priority in the life of their children. That's how you leave your children in the hands of God, by giving them the gospel on a daily basis. Fathers can do all kinds of things for their children. I recall my, my brother who, who retired several years ago. He retired as a colonel in the army. They offered him a general position. They said, you can be a general. We want you to be a general. He said, no, I want to spend time with my children. That's an example that made me go, wow, I want to follow that. My own father was, was worked on a job for 47 years in the same job. They said, we want to make you a manager. We want to make you a supervisor. He said, no, I don't want that responsibility. I want my responsibility at home with my family. And how many fathers are saying no to promotions because if, if I do that, I can spend more time at home to raise my children. It says here, in, in the concluding verses here, it says, for they, they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. In verse 58, 59, when God heard it, he was full of wrath. And he utterly rejected Israel and forsook the dwelling at Shiloh. You read about this in 1 Samuel first, uh, chapter 4, where Israel was so wrapped up in immorality with Eli's sons uh, not living the way they should be living. The priesthood was all forgetful of God and his glory and it says in verse 61, they delivered and delivered his power to captivity. You're talking about the Ark of the Covenant, his glory into the hand of the foe. The Ark got stolen because the priesthood wasn't remembering, wasn't teaching the next generation. 
but was indulgent. It says in 1 Samuel they were indulgent, sleeping with the women, indulging themselves on pleasure and not on God's purposes, the kingdom. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured, verse 63, the young men and their young women had no wedding songs. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows had no lamentation. And here it is. Here it is. This is the reason why we sing. Verse 65, Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. Probably not the first image you have of God, having drunk too much, and woke up from sleep and starts shouting. You ever see a drunk person shout? It's kind of unnerving. You don't know what they're going to do next. God, God gives this picture of himself as a man shouting because of wine. And, and wine gives joy, the Bible says. It makes the heart glad. And here you have a picture of God, as it were, he was sleeping. We know that God doesn't sleep, but that's the picture that's given here. And he wakes up, and he's shouting with joy. And of course, you know what that's pointing to. It's pointing to Jesus, who slept the sleep of death and was waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. He told his disciples, I won't drink this cup again until I drink it in the kingdom with you. Then he went to the cross, and he died, and they put him in a tomb. He was a corpse. But on the third day, he woke up, and he was shouting. He was full of joy, because the kingdom was his. His people were his. He bought them with his blood, and every single square inch of the world was his. God gave the whole universe to him. God gave every nation to him. He had a reason to shout. He made it. He finished it. He paid for it. And he's like a strong man shouting because of wine. Shouting because of the marriage supper of the Lamb. He shouts because he, he reconciled you back to God. He shouts because he paid for your sin. He shouts because your rebellion has been separated from you as far as the east is from the west. He shouts because your sons. He shouts because your daughters. He shouts because you've got the Spirit. He shouts because He wants to work through you to advance His kingdom. And so there's a need to prioritize the Gospel. There's a need to prioritize Jesus. There's a need to prioritize the kingdom. There's a need to prioritize the cross. Not be mealy mouth about it, but to say son, daughter, or, or young person, whoever it might be, the best thing I could ever give you is Jesus. My mother used to tell us about grades. My mother was a teacher. She was an educator for over 40 years. She was a stickler. Good, better, best. Never let it rest until your good is better and your better is best. She used to drill that stuff home. And one day, what happened? Guess what happened? I took a test, I flunked it. Wow. So I thought, I thought, mother worked in the same school. This shows you how silly I was. I took the test and threw it in the trash can and went about my merry way. The custodian knew my mother. I went home, and in order to go to my house, you had to walk through the living room. Then you had to walk through the dining room. My mother put the test on the dining room table. She met me in the living room. Brian, you get any grades today? No. Think about your answer, Brian. Did you get any grades today? No. I said, come here, I want to show you something. Oh, I tell you, when I saw that test, <laughs> 
I saw my whole life <laughs> stretched out before me. I didn't know what, how, how. Mama got skills. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> she said, Brian, go up and get the strap. And she gave it to me, babe. I said, she gave it to me. And she said, Brian, if you're stupid, we can get you a tutor. Don't you dare lie to me. Your life is about loving Jesus. It's not about grades. It's about God. Don't ever do that. And so we, she straightened that thing out <laughs> by the grace of God. But here we see in conclusion, you see how, how in verse 67, he rejected the tent of Joseph. Remember? A new king rose in Egypt. Didn't know Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. After Joshua died, the people forgot all about Joshua. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built the sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he founded forever. God wants to build a sanctuary. He's been building a sanctuary all along. Since the, since the, since the drop of the Holy Spirit, God has been building a sanctuary, a forever sanctuary, his own people, his own dwelling place. And the way he did it was through his chosen servant, David, who he took from the sheepfolds to follow, following the nursing ewes and brought him to be shepherd of his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded him and guided them with a skillful hand. You know, David was a great king. He, he trained his son Solomon to build a great temple. He trained him on the gospel. Unfortunately, Solomon's end wasn't as great as his beginning. But he trained him to build that place of God's dwelling. And that all looks forward to the son of David, Jesus Christ, who came to build the everlasting sanctuary and to be the shepherd of his people, to guide you with skillful hand. That Jesus Christ has put a word in you. He's put a testimony in you. He's put the gospel in you. You've got a message. If you ever think you don't have what it takes to be a parent, if you have a testimony about Jesus Christ, you have what it takes to be a parent. You need to share Jesus with your child. You need to share the gospel with your child. Everything else funnels after that. Make that the priority. Everything else falls into place. Seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. Every other basic necessity will be met. You seek the best, you get the rest. So we come to God asking him to give us grace to tell the next generation in, in, in such a way that the next generation will want to tell the next generation about the gospel. It's one thing to tell your child the gospel. It's another thing to tell your child the gospel to the point where they want to tell someone else about the gospel. That they can't wait to tell their children about the gospel. That God is that good and Jesus is that good that when you tell your child the gospel, your children, by the grace of God, will get the memo that, boy, this is something I can't wait to have my children to tell them this message. That's what we need. We need a generation of folk who are gospel-centered and gospel-preaching to their children. That's the legacy we're supposed to leave so that, so, that, so that the earth, why? So that the earth might be filled, right, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just like the waters cover the sea. And that glory is found in Jesus Christ and his cross and his burial in his resurrection in his kingdom. So may God give us grace to share that and to be successful in that way. That's the only way to be a successful parent is to share the gospel with your children. Let's pray. Our Father, in Christ's name we come. We give thanks to you because you're good to us. We thank you because you've given us a message. You have put a testimony, not only in Jacob, but you put a testimony in us. 
And may we, like that woman at the well, go running in the town saying, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And may we do that with our children. May that be the message our children most think about us. That if someone were to ask our children, what do your parents most promote in your life? What's most valuable to your parents? That they would be able to immediately say, Jesus and the gospel. Father, work it in our hearts so that if our children were ever in a position where they were cornered with the troubles of this world, they would know that this is didactic. It's not a reason for me to run from God, but a reason to run to God. And may our children see the love of Jesus and the the blood of Christ and the, the faithfulness of Christ, and may it be decisive for them. May it move them to say, I want to be there for Jesus. I want to be a part of his kingdom. I want to be used by him. No matter the cost, I'm here for him. Father, thank you for being such a faithful God in the midst of all of our unfaithfulness. Without your compassion and atoning love, none of us would have any hope. But God, you give us so much hope because of Jesus. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.